from WGCU News. This is Gulf Coast Life. I'm Mike Knight. It's all hands on deck right now when it comes to relief efforts across southwest Florida in the wake of Hurricane Ian, which made landfall as a strong Category 4 hurricane near Sanibel Island on Wednesday, September 28th in the early afternoon. So far in total, Hurricane Ian has caused at least 137 fatalities, including 126 in Florida. The storm caused catastrophic damage with losses currently estimated between $28 and $63 billion. Damage is mostly from flooding with the cities of Fort Myers Beach and Naples particularly impacted. For the first part of today's show, we're going to learn about the work being done right now by the United Way of Lee Hendry Glades in Okeechobee. They're partnering with the Collaboratory in downtown Fort Myers, which is raising money through the Southwest Florida Emergency Relief Fund. To get a sense of what they're focusing right now and the work they're doing managing the 211 Crisis Helpline, I'm joined on the phone by Janine Joy. She's president and CEO of the United Way of Lee Hendry Glades in Okeechobee. Janine, thank you so much for taking some time out of your surely busy day to talk with us. Thank you for having me. Uh, for starters, can you just go back to like right before the storm and as it approached, like what do you guys do at that point to prepare yourself for what might happen? And then we'll talk about what you're doing now. Um, in, in general, you know, United Way is 211 is a number that's available 24 hours, seven days a week. But when we go into a disaster mode or crisis mode or there's a, a hurricane coming, we start taking the storm hotline calls for the county. So um, a couple days before the storm, we were actually at EOC uh, with our staff doing call-outs to the special needs shelter population to make sure that if they didn't have transportation, we could get them there. And then uh, by 4 o'clock on Tuesday, um, there were nine of us that were going to, to ride out the storm there at EOC and take calls, and that ended up being, you know, two days before we could leave safely um, through the storm. So we took, it was nonstop. The phones were ringing the whole time. Uh, so you never did lose the ability to receive phone calls? No, because we, we're at the Emergency Operations Center. We took calls the whole night. And I think that, you know, the calls started out more like people wanting to know where their evacuation, you know, were they in a zone that was evacuated, where was shelter, um, to then during the middle of the night when the storm started to get really bad, we were getting calls from people who had water up to their neck, um, didn't know how to swim, were panicking, and then we'd lose a phone call. So we don't know what happened to those callers, but we can only assume that it wasn't good. Um, what are the kinds of information that you were able to provide or like the programs or systems you're able to connect people to through the crisis phone line? Well, at first it was points of distribution after the storm, so where people could get food and water. Um, there is still a lot of food and water available, and we're still pointing people to that, but now it's more about where can we get recovery and relief. Um, we cannot stress enough that people need to get to the Disaster Recovery Center. Uh, that is the best place to go right now. So FEMA can actually, instead of trying to do that application online, there are FEMA representatives there as well as other agencies, and people can go through that, and FEMA will We'll walk you through it and make sure that you are um, signed up for whatever you're eligible for. It's, it's such a great program, and, and I encourage everyone to go to that disaster recovery center. Um, there's, there's a number of them open. Do you happen to have at your fingertips where they are, just to tell people who might be listening that can't get on the Internet? Right. Um, well, you can always call 211. 
and they can point you to the one that's closest to you. Um, But the one that has the most resources right now is located at Lakes Regional Library off of Gladiolus Drive. And it's not only the FEMA representatives there, but also other agencies as well that can help, you know, people sign up for um, DSNAP or disaster unemployment and, and those things. So that would be the most comprehensive location. But our United Way 211 can direct you to one that's closer to you with at least FEMA. Can you explain sort of the scope of the work you're doing right now beyond, uh, you know, answering this phone system and directing people to resources? Sure. Right now we are trying to make sure that our nonprofits are coming up and running and providing services because while we're still in response and relief mode, um, there are other services that still need to be happening within our community. And so, you know, things like Children's Advocacy Center, um, abuse and, you know, doesn't stop because of a storm. So making sure that these agencies are up and running and providing services and then getting the extra dollars they need to provide more services for their clients that are coming in is so key and important right now. So we're making sure we're staying in communication. We're supporting the agencies um, with a lot of gifts and kind donations. So when they have a need, we're able to transport that. We're working with all of the agencies on coordinating mass feeding. Um, So people like Salvation Army and uh, Harry Chapman Food Bank and the Red Cross. We're coordinating, knowing where everyone is. And also when we, when we hear about a pocket of our area that needs help that maybe isn't getting it, we're able to direct those agencies to those areas as well. Uh, like I mentioned at the top of the show, the Collaboratory in downtown Fort Myers, which used to be the Southwest Florida Community Foundation, they're raising money for the Southwest Florida Emergency Relief Fund. How is that effort going, and you know, how are you d- redirecting that money at this point? Um, the partnership we have with Collaboratory is absolutely fantastic. They allow us to do the response and the relief efforts that we need to do and raise the money and handle a lot of the back-end um, that needs to be handled, like the thank yous and the receipts and everything, and then they turn the money over to United Way. And then we assess the needs, um, just like I was mentioning about the agencies. And one of the things that we know that there's a great need for right now is people to replace things that they've lost um, or just have that stop gap before the FEMA money comes in. So um, immediately last week, uh, we went ahead and, and purchased worth in Visa gift cards. Uh, It takes a little while for those to get printed and get here, but we have those that we're going to be handing out. We've already been doing some other gift cards that we've had in hand just to to bridge the gap for those people as other services and things come in. And we're working through our partner agencies to get those out to the community. Are you working with other United Way branches or however they're described? I don't know if branches is the right term, but, you know, there are other United Ways like yourself. Are you coordinating with them? We are, and we um, are actually working with the entire state um, as far as United Ways across the state because a lot of them have resources that they can send over. They're also raising funds for our area, and we're working together with, of course, you know, Charlotte and South Sarasota County and, you know, Collier County and the, all the surrounding United Ways just to make sure that we are, we're working smarter, not harder, and we want to make sure that we're sharing best practices and, and you know, making sure that we are meeting the needs that we can. How is your staff doing right now? I don't know how large it is, but how are they doing? Because, you know, it's it's difficult to help sometimes when you need help yourself. It is. Um, We have 73 staff members. They are all accounted for and safe. 
and they have varying degrees of damage, just like everyone in our community. Uh, but I think one of the things that they've seen is that the need is so great and our community was hit so hard um, that they're, you know, even if they're tired, they are coming in and they are making sure that, you know, they're doing their part for the relief and response efforts right now. Um, just a dedicated dedicated group of, of team members who are, are pushing themselves. I keep reminding everyone self-care. We do have volunteer opportunities um, that are not only, you know, throughout the community, but also within the call center to help some of our staff get the breaks that they need. Um, and people can sign up for that by going to volunteer.unitedwaylee.org. And if they go there, they, will, they can sign up and see all the different opportunities that are available out there. Okay, we'll have a link to that on our website as well. But you ha- you are then able to, you know, if somebody wants to volunteer right now, you're going to be able to turn them around and get them helping as quickly as possible? Yes, and we imagine that in the, in the next two weeks we'll have even more opportunities. Uh, there's still a lot of areas where they're assessing damage and, you know, the relief is still there and it might be too dangerous for some places yet to get those volunteers. So I know last count we had over 600 registered and had deployed over 300. So um, we're working with those volunteer opportunities. We did a food distribution at our main campus in Harlem Heights um, on Saturday and Sunday, and um, we had a bunch of volunteers come in and help for that and just making sure that people had food and water and diapers and, um, you know, feminine care products. People don't think about everything that these families lost. Uh, And I know in Harlem Heights, for instance, there was there were several feet of water um, that came into this area, and people had to, appliances are gone, mattresses are gone, all of those things. So we're just trying to help the community and in all areas, not just Harlem Heights, get back on their feet. Can people donate things like that to you, you know, physical things, not just money? Well, and, and this is where it gets interesting. There's a terminology after a disaster, and it's called the second disaster. Uh, and this is why I try to explain to people that dollars can be turned around faster than things. Um, we had someone who actually called and said, I want to send a semi-truck full of clothes, brand new clothes, down to the area. And the logistics of that was going to be a nightmare because um, you have to have volunteers that sort. You have to have a location to store them if they don't go out right away. Um, then you have to get them to the people. And it just Things take a lot more time and effort and energy than us being able just to say, okay, we need a truckload of, you know, we need this at this location, um, or just handing somebody a gift card to let them go out and buy the clothes themselves. One of the things that we see during this is that, you know, people need that sense of dignity. They've already been picking up food and water for themselves, and if we can give them the ability to actually go out and purchase the clothes that are going to work for them, fit them right, their style, all of that, it just gives them that sense of dignity. So I know some people really do want to give things. Um, I would suggest that you work with somebody who, you know, if you're working with a church or whatever, they have a plan for that, and you have a place where you can drop it off. Because um, good intentions by everyone, um, but I just know that it's it can be overwhelming to get a ton of tangible stuff. Understood. Well, that is all the time we have for this part of the show, but I want to thank my guest, Janine Joy, as president and CEO of the United Way of Lee Hendry Glades in Okeechobee. Janine, thank you so much for your time and for the work that you and your team are doing right now. Well, thank you for having us, and don't forget, dial 211. 
And if you'd like to support the Southwest Florida Emergency Relief Fund, go to the Collaboratories website at collaboratory.org. For the rest of the show today, we're going to get a first take on Hurricane Ian's ecological impact. Ian made landfall near Sanibel Island as a strong Category 4 storm and brought historic storm surge levels in excess of 12 feet in some places. It's the kind of storm surge emergency managers say they've always feared, but that we've never really experienced here in this part of Florida. To get some perspective on what this storm event might mean for Southwest Florida's ecological systems, I'm joined in studio by Dr. Wynn Everham. He's a professor in the Department of Ecology and Environmental Studies at Florida Gulf Coast University and a founding FGCU faculty member. Wynn, welcome back to the show. Wish it was under different circumstances. Thanks, Mike. So you went up in a helicopter on Saturday. What did you get to see on that ride and kind of give us a briefing? Um, we've got some projects right now looking at mangroves, and they were really intended to be get baseline for when a hurricane comes. It would have been better for my research if this hurricane had waited a few years, but but we'll we'll deal with what we can. So we actually didn't go to what was probably the worst part of um, Upper Charlotte Harbor and over into Sanibel. We kind of came out of Page Field, went down to the north part of Estero Bay, and went south from there. So I saw you know what everybody else has been seeing on TV: a lot of um, uh, human tragedy. Uh, I was surprised in flying over that part of our mangroves. I didn't see what I expected of those kind of uh, tornado-borne swaths of blowdown. Mm -hmm. The mangroves were defoliated. Um, Boats and debris were blown up into the mangroves. But honestly, I think the mangrove um, bounce back in Astero Bay is going to be remarkably fast. Hmm. What about like, uh, you know— Sand dunes. We have the protective sand dunes along the beaches. You know, you may not have seen them on your on your helicopter ride, yeah. but you know, what are the implications of this much storm surge to those coastal you know stretches? It certainly is going to move sand around, um, and you know, I think I think in your intro you talked about unprecedented. Um, that's probably wrong. You know, from an ecological standpoint, okay. this region has probably seen a storm like this multiple times in the last few thousand years. Well, it yeah, I, I should when, have said on yeah. record. Yes, sir. <laughs> yeah. And, and I want, what I want to get to is that um, historically things move around. Barrier islands accrete and uh, are eroded. Um, the real challenge is that now that we've put our footprint on the landscape, if you lose a beach and it, pick it up someplace else, that's still a problem and we're trying to figure out how to fix it. So I'm sure we got some erosion along the, the beaches. I'm sure we got some back dune erosion, but I'm sure we also got some deposition and rebuilding of some dunes in some places. If we could somehow live on this landscape and accept that um, shifting patterns that occur, uh, we'd be better off. But that's a real challenge for humans. Um, we were talking just briefly before the conversation started about how um, you were specula- speculating that um, – Hurricane Irma five years ago may have sort of taken out some of the trees that were weakest, and so maybe the tree downage—I don't know if that's the right way to say yeah, it—might yeah. be might be a, a bit different in this storm. It's possible. I, I, I thought that a little bit flying over the mangroves that I didn't see a lot of blowdown, and you know, five years since the last time a, a strong storm came through, certainly would have pre-pruned things. But I, I want to be careful. In my part, I was a little bit south and east of the storm near the university. So I I lost more trees from Hurricane Irma than I did from Ian. But, of course, um, that was so recent that m- my forest, you know, my yard hasn't grown back up again. And I've been careful about pruning and control. Uh, before I draw uh, – I've heard other people say they're seeing the same kinds of patterns, that they haven't seen as much blowdown as they anticipated. But 
that always varies across the landscape. And there are certainly people who experienced that really devastating wind and um, probably patches of southwest Florida where it looks like God drove a giant lawnmower over it. What are the implications of a bunch of trees losing all their leaves all at once in September, October in Florida? Well, that's a great question. So if you, if you didn't add in the in the Florida, I'd say, well, that's what happens pretty much all over the northern part of well, the United sure, States. Well, sure, sure. So, but but the point is that they get we, we've gotten in addition to whatever's flown you know flushed down from our yards into our riverways, into our bays, into our estuaries, we've dumped a huge amount of organic material onto the ground. So it's going to be a pulse of nutrients, probably historically in absence of humans, partly fed the recovery so that, that the vegetation would bounce back relatively quickly um, with this fertilization event. Um, for us, it's too much fertilizer. You know, it's, it's like if you fertilize your lawn every week, you're going to burn the grass. There's, just, there's too much organic material down now in addition to whatever came out of our septic systems, you know, whatever flowed off of our landscape. Um, on a larger woody scale, I'd expect um, possible challenges in the next year or the next two years, depending on how weather and climate shifts. We'll, we've got a lot of woody debris down on the landscape in natural areas, and that's uh, a fuel load for wildfires. So we know that come next spring when the um, lightning storms come back through, they're going to light up some fires. And so if you've got all of this stuff that's been blown down by in we have a higher likelihood of more intense fires. God, I don't, I don't ever like to feel like Chicken Little, like, you know, it's, it's bad and worse. But those are just the realities. Um, you know, so much stuff got washed out into our water bodies, our bays. You know, it's, it's organic matter like you were talking about. Yeah. It's, it's docks. It's things like that. But it's also septic tank stuff. It's yeah. also, you know, anything that was sitting on the land. Um, what are the implications for the water bodies uh, going forward? We had a couple of folks from the water school, Serge Thomas and Don Duke, were out on the water doing some sampling. I believe it was Imperial River. It might have been Estero River. And they were getting um, – not surprisingly, but still real low dissolved oxygen levels right now. So DO powers the um, animals that live, the fish and the other organisms that live in the water. And typically, if you get below four parts um, per million, you're, you're stressing those, those animals. And they were getting things below two. Now, I said my experience from other hurricanes in freshwater systems is that native fishes and organisms seem to be adapted to that. So they probably, after the hurricane, hunker down a bit until the systems flush out and the sunlight reinvigorates the dissolved oxygen. So when you put a lot of organic material into a water body, like when you have an algal bloom and an algal die-off, the bacteria chew all of that stuff up and pull the oxygen out so you get these fish kills. Um, we could be seeing that in near coastal systems. You could be seeing algal blooms because of that fertilization event. That's just the organic material. I remember after Andrew, somebody phrasing it this way, think about all of that stuff that's in your garage. You know, fertilizers, pesticides, paint, solvents, gasoline, and imagine dumping it all, everybody in your neighborhood all at once into your backyards. You know, that's what happened with the, with the storm surge. So a longer legacy might be some of these more complicated uh, chemicals that we've now flushed into our near coastal systems. Some of them will break down. Some of them are going to reside for a while. What are the implications for wildlife on land? That's a great question. Um, I saw, trying to get my dogs out during the storm, two squirrels perched on top of the 
I'm bat box under the eve of my house, right? So um, I, I honestly think that the native wildlife, like the native plants, have seen hurricanes through evolutionary time. Um, now, their habitats have been restricted by human activity. So it may be historically it was easy for them to move from an impacted place to a, a less impacted place, and some of that movement by, might be really restricted now. Um, I am hopeful that, that uh, except for that additional burden of what we've done to the landscape, that the wildlife will actually bounce back pretty quick. Is it possible to say how the kinds of impacts that we received, particularly from water, connect in some way to the ways that we've developed here in southwest Florida and, you know, maybe in contrast to other parts of the state who have done a less good job of, yeah. of keeping mangroves yeah. and things like that. Yeah. Um, so we all know now, you know, from the coverage that a hurricane is really three events. It's um, a storm surge, it's a wind event, and it's a rainfall event. So I feel like on our side of the storm in um, the eastern and southern Lee County, we were thankfully um, gifted not a lot of rain. I haven't seen the totals, but I've been saying I'll be surprised if it was six inches, you know, which is a lot of rain. It's just that it could have – in Orlando, it was double that. So I don't think that we got the flush of fresh water. Uh, the imperial went up a bit, you know, but that what, what could have happened, that sort of fresh water surge meeting the storm surge and in, in the middle flooding. If we had, I'd like to think that um, we're getting better prepared for it as we're putting – um, more development on the landscape, we're raising some of the standards for stormwater retention. That's what we should be doing. I don't think it's enough. You know, we should be holding a lot more water back than we did. We went through that period of development where we thought, let's build more canals and let's get this stuff off the land. And you do that, and that's what's flooding people downstream. You know, if, if you've got a lot of water in the eastern part of the county and your solution is to channel it west, then somebody's going to have a wet first floor from that. Uh, as we flew down south, I was struck by, and it's, it's really hard, 500 feet in a helicopter to try to read, um, you know, which buildings were flooded six feet. But there are portions of southern Lee County and then as you go into Collier County where development occurred away from the coast with a, bare, with a line of mangroves between it and places where they didn't, you know, where the homes are right up behind the, the beach barrier. And I... I'm tempted to say you could see the difference, but I think I really need to look at better data than you know flying in a helicopter. It makes sense to me as an ecologist to say, if you protect mangroves, they'll protect you. And I'm hoping that as we figure out how we'll come back from this, part of it could be putting mangroves back in places where, we, where they weren't. And maybe even recognizing that with sea level rise, we need to have more mangroves higher up in elevation. There's parts of the Mississippi River where they've flooded out in the last two, three decades where now people are, are if they're insured, they're giving, giving their money back, but they're being told they need to build someplace else, that we may, we should look at that in southwest Florida. Are there places where homes were that we shouldn't put them back? And I don't know economically, politically, how we would deal with that. Um, That's a long answer to a complicated question. <laughs> yeah. Um, I talked to uh, somebody from UF IFAS last week um, about some ag uh, impacts, and um, I asked him about 
you know, Pine Island, there's agriculture on Pine Island. It was completely inundated by seawater. He was very concerned about the long-term implications of that for yeah. growing crops in land that now has been salted effectively. Yeah. Just not necessarily the ag side, but just in general, how do plants handle that much seawater yeah. when they aren't coastal? It's a great question. You know, historically, that was a way to um, wage war is to salt people's ag fields. I'll again say that maybe we'll be gifted by a good rainy season next year, you know, which is going to flush some of that salt out as it goes through, and that probably the native plants and animals have seen this through evolutionary time, and they're going to be adjusted to temporarily elevated salt conditions. We'll have to see how that is. I think it is going to be a challenge for agriculture in the near future, but probably not long-term, you know, because again, we haven't seen it, but that that land has. So the fact that you could grow the crops that you wanted to before Ian would lead me to believe that you will be again. Hmm. Is this storm going to be impacting any research efforts that you're either involved in or aware of, or maybe furthering some, like you alluded to earlier, because this gives us a chance to see what a storm like this does? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, I talked with somebody from uh, Science, the magazine Science, the journal Science, either Thursday or Friday. You know, it's weird trying to remember when. Yeah. And he was asking me about the work that I'm doing, and it was mostly about this alligator research we're doing on campus. We're trying to figure out how alligators are fitting in with humans on a landscape. And I really wanted to jump on this and capitalize. I can't find anything in the literature. What do alligators do? Do they sense that a hurricane is coming? Do they, mm. they change behaviorally? And I got a little bit of preliminary data before the storm came, but the truth was, I didn't have the bandwidth to track them afterwards. You know, I told this guy, I said, I'm a scientist, but it's hard to think about the data I need to collect when what I really need is a shower, right? right? Yeah, yeah. So um, we certainly at the water school are going to um, be meeting this week, trying to figure out what our response is. Um, I'm hoping that, you know, two weeks out, we haven't lost some really critical stuff. I'm going to be back in our mangrove plots for the first time tomorrow morning. You know, just to to get an initial gauge on on what the wind and water did. I know uh, Vester Field Station took a pretty hard hit, right? Have you have, had a chance to see it? I'll be down there tomorrow morning, and so it sounds um, uh, uh, it sounds like it was a heavy hit. So I'm I'm hoping that we um, figure out how we can recover it. It's really really makes a difference for us to have that kind of a facility to be able to stage work. Our plot that I'm going to is uh, oh. Two three hundred yards away from the field station, so mm. it's made it really easy for us to get out and get measurements. And, and I, just for the listeners' sake, that's sort of a, it's Bonita Beach Road, right yeah, there on the south end of yeah. Fort Myers Beach. Right before you, um, if you're going down Bonita Beach Road, right before you're going to either turn left onto Barefoot Beach or or turn right to follow the coast, uh, right before Coconut Jacks. Uh, last question: You've lived in Southwest Florida at least since the late '90s when FGCU yeah. was founded. You know, yeah. just what's your you know take on this? You know, both from a human perspective and from a, you know a researcher's perspective. Just what's your big picture take on what Ian's going to mean? Hmm. So I don't know if I can separate the two. Uh, being a citizen of Southwest Florida, my home wasn't as impacted, but the region was more impacted than anything I've seen. You know, since I got here in '96. Um, I heard someone, one of my colleagues, um, say that he thought maybe this is the most devastating thing that's happened to Fort Myers ever. You know, and I had to pause and think about, you know, certainly not through geologic time, but through human time. That might be right. I I like to try to figure out, does this um, – it's horrible. It's horrible the people who have lost their homes, that have lost uh, 
their dreams. Uh, maybe this opens a door for us to be thinking about better. You know, um, this will not be the last storm that we see like this. And again, I don't, I don't mean to scare people. You know, the governor referred to it as one in 500 years. I'm not sure we can say that with uh, the increased frequency of more intense storms that we're seeing with climate change. So it really uh, demands of us that we think very carefully about how we build back to make us both more resistant and resilient. You know, how, how can we put people on this landscape in a way where there's less tragedy the next time we have a storm like this? All right. Well, thank you for uh, coming in and talking with me, Wynn. I appreciate it. Dr. Wynn Everham is a professor in the Department of Ecology and Environmental Studies at Florida Gulf Coast University. It's great to see you. Thanks, Mike. And everybody out there, stay safe. And thanks also to our earlier guest today, Janine Joy, is president and CEO of the United Way of Lee Hendry Glades in Okeechobee. If you are able to support the Southwest Florida Emergency Relief Fund that is helping the United Way help people across Southwest Florida, just go to the Collaboratories website. That's collaboratory.org. That's C-O-L-L-A-B-O-R-A-T-O-R-Y.org. Or just Google it. I'm sure it'll spell it for you. But they have a pop-up right there where you can give. If you missed any of today's show, you can always hear our episodes in their entirety on our website, wgcu.org slash gcl, or wherever you get your podcasts. Our show today was produced by Tara Calligan and myself. Our director today is Jared Gonzalez. Our social media coordinator is Tara Calligan. For now, thanks for listening. I'm Mike Canary. This is WGCU-FM, Fort Myers 90.1, WMKO Marco Island 91.7 FM. We are NPR for Southwest Florida.